0: right. Thanks, AJ. Well, good morning to you. All right. Happy Sunday. Uh, You know, one of the reasons that we uh, landed on doing one service is that uh, we want to kind of, as we come out of COVID, we want to be able to regather and look at all the people together who are in this church in one space. So you guys, as the 11 o'clock service, will get to meet the individuals who wake up early on a Sunday morning. I'm excited for that for you. You're going to go, wow, that's what you do on Sunday. So we're all going to be together. 10 o'clock is going to be great. Looking forward to that. Uh, All right. Hey, if you're new, my name is Steve. Welcome to Citadel Square. We're in a study of the book of Revelation. So if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn to Revelation chapter 12. If you don't have one, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you somewhere, a black one. Uh, If you don't have one, go ahead and grab it, take it, read it, and that's our gift to you. Revelation Chapter 12. We've been moving sequentially through this book and watching uh, as the wrath of God is poured out on the planet for sin. Uh, and we come today to a section of scripture that's going to be kind of a break and a biographical section between chapter 12 and chapter 15, where we're going to look at one particular individual and his influence. We are going to look at the career of Satan. Uh, Satan. Um, may bring up lots of different mental images for you. Uh, It it may bring up the serpent in the garden. It may bring up uh, Paul's words in Ephesians where he talks about taking up the full armor of God that we may take our stand against the devil. Um, It may be uh, more of a cultural picture to you, that the devil is kind of a joke, and the devil isn't really spoken of in any sort of serious terms in our culture that he's seen kind of as in commercials or in YouTube videos as somewhat of a joke and somewhat of a uh, horned individual with a pitchfork and a tail. But uh, throughout the Bible, Satan's career is somewhat behind the scenes. You don't see a lot of who he is, only in flashes and in moments, until The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation pulls back the curtain and pulls back the veil and shows you who Satan is, what he's been doing, what his ambition and his agenda is, what his work is in opposing God's purposes and God's people all throughout the ages. And the most explicit definition, the most explicit uh, picture we get Of Satan is in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 13. His work comes to light in the book of Revelation. That he's very active, very visible. You're very clear as God shows you here's what this created being has done, here's what this created being is doing to oppose God and to his purposes. And then we get into Revelation chapter 13. Next week, we're going to see Satan take over the world, that he becomes and works through the, uh, the large political uh, world power and through the Antichrist who takes his seat in the temple of God. We mentioned him a little bit last week, but we'll see him in full and living color in chapter 12 and chapter 13. This is one of those chapters that I started and thought I was going to be able to get through in one message, but I am not. So when we go to one service, I can preach for two hours, and it won't be that big a deal. It'll be kind of normal. We'll be able to go all till noon, and we will all be good. But when you preach two services, you've got to cut down your material. So we're only going to make it in this uh, chapter all the way down to about verse 12, because there's something in this chapter that is so important, and it's so uh, normal and common for uh, you and whoever you are in um, your spiritual life. That sooner or later, you feel these moments in life where you recognize that you are not the person you want to be. Where you hit a valley in life and you hit a struggle in life and you feel the tension between who you ought to be and who you are. That you get caught in a sin or you say something that you shouldn't or you're irrationally angry or lustful or comparing against others and you feel the tension as somebody who walks with Christ between who he calls me to be and quite frankly who I am right now. And that can lead to feelings of shame and embarrassment and condemnation and uncertainty about Christ and his love for me about whether or not God can work in this scenario, in this situation. And what I want to show you today from Revelation chapter 12 is that's exactly where Satan works. When Satan shows up in the scriptures, we said this before when we looked at the work of demons That the demons who show up in the New Testament work primarily in deception. Jesus talks about Satan as being the father of lies. But we're going to see him utilize one particular tactic to discourage and drive you to despair. To cause you to, to wonder whether or not the truth of the gospel is alive and well in your life and in your heart. And all of that is going to be in Revelation chapter 12, okay? We're going to have, we call this uh, message the woman, the dragon, and the war. Uh, and that's what we're going to see here in uh, Revelation chapter 12 together. All right, you with me? All right, let's pray together and ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. For those who come in uh, to this place here this morning and sing the songs and, and read the scripture together but still feel unqualified who still feel despairing over where their life and their spiritual situation is right now, Father, I pray that for just these few minutes they would gain a greater understanding of your love for them. That you would blow away the fog of uncertainty and doubt and despair and discouragement and that we would see clearly the love of Jesus Christ for us in what he's done for us on the cross. So Father, bless these few minutes, help us to see your word in new light. Would you tear down lies and replace them with truth that we may live lives of joy and beauty and integrity, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done in the name of Jesus Christ. So we pray in his name and for his sake, amen. All right, Revelation 12, verse 1, y'all there? Take a look. A great sign in verse 1 appeared in heaven. You don't have signs up to this point mentioned in the book of Revelation. You've got probably seven that happen between 12 all the way through to 19. So John's about to have a a vision. uh, And a sign for John is is an image that means something deeper than what he sees. So that's helpful for us as we see and help um, as we understand what John is about to show us here in Revelation chapter 12. Let's take a look at the first character in his vision. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and she's gloriously clothed. Back in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees the risen Christ, he has a face that shines like the sun. So this woman in, in her attire is glorious and brilliant and vivid in her uh, in her attire. Not only that, she has the moon underneath her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, sun, moon, and stars are three different images surrounding the image of this woman. That's gonna, the, these images are gonna help us interpret who this woman is. Some people think, oh, this is clearly Mary. Mary is going to bring forth the sun who's gonna rule the, uh, all of the nations with the rod of iron, but... This image that John has is an image of a corporate people. Way back in Genesis, uh, if you remember the life of Joseph, Joseph uh, is taken into captivity right, with the, in Egypt by uh, Potiphar and serves the uh, agenda of the pharaoh in that land. But before he goes, he has two visions, one of which is as they're at the harvest time, they're gathering the harvest, and he says that your sheaves, the sheaves of wheat, bow down. Everybody in his family bows down to his. And everybody goes, well, that's kind of a weird one, Joe. And then the other one he has, he has the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down to him. And then everybody gets real bothered by this one. Even his father saying, are, are you telling me, Joseph, that your father and mother and brothers are all going to bow down to you? And in one vision, the, the beginning of the nation of Israel in Jacob and his wives and his 12 sons are seen in celestial images, in a sun and moon and stars. So it's probably that as we look at this vision, John is looking at the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament, throughout the ages, as represented by this woman clothed in the sun and with the moon underneath her feet. The moon is an interesting sign for the nation of Israel. The moon, the new moon festivals would be times when God's people would come together and it would mark for them the seasons of worship. So there was a sense of consistency in rhythms for the nation of Israel. Even more so when uh, God's people are taken into exile and and Jeremiah writes. Jeremiah writes and says, uh, If the fixed order departs, i.e. the moon and the stars, the things that mark out your worship life, if that departs, so will the people of Israel cease to be a people before me. But what is God saying? He's saying that that his people are his precious, known, protected people. And that he will ensure that his people will be precious and God will fulfill his promises to them. So as John's purview is open and he sees this sign in heaven, he sees an image of the corporate people of God. Now let me show you what this image continues to be described as. This woman isn't standing, but take a look at verse two. She's pregnant. Not only is she pregnant, but she's crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So this woman is in, is in the throes of childbirth. The, the idea here that, that John sees is that this woman, one, is in pain, and two, is filled with anticipation. That that's an essence of childbirth, right? Ladies who've, who've had kids, that, that as you move toward bringing that child to bear, that there's great pain, but there's also great anticipation. This is what Paul talks about in the book of Romans when he talks about all creation groaning in the pains of childbirth. For the revealing of the sons of God. That creation itself is filled with anticipation and filled with pain as it looks forward to the fulfillment of God and his promises. Paul in the book of Galatians talks to the Galatian church and says, Church, with whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That Paul recognizes that as he pastors people, he's longing for them to come to the place of maturity and fulfillment of God's promises. Well, here's the historic people of God, the Old Testament nation of Israel, who's in the pains of childbirth until something happens. That this nation brings forth this child. And this characterizes all of the Old Testament when it comes to the nation of Israel. In the book of Genesis... You have Abraham and Sarah who are barren, and all they have is the promise of God that in you, your seed, will all the nations be blessed. But God, I don't have a kid. That my wife is barren, you haven't fulfilled your promises. Then you get to Isaac, right? And guess what? Isaac and Rebecca have a problem. Isaac and Rebecca are barren. And then you move forward throughout your Bible and you get to places like 1 Samuel Samuel, where you have Hannah and Elkanah who are once again barren, pleading and praying and crying out to God that God might do something and bring life out of a barren womb. You go even earlier than Abraham and you go back to Noah. Remember Noah? Noah, said of Noah, Noah, they say, well, we're going to name him Noah because Noah, will. he's the one who will bring us rest from our labors. You get to Moses' day, and God says, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among your people who will speak the word of God. You get to David's day. David has a prophecy from God that says, on your, from your line will come one who is to rule on your throne. In fact, the whole Old Testament is pregnant with anticipation pregnant with waiting for God to bring forth the Messiah, the one in whom the whole nation hopes. And here's the nation in the pains of childbirth, in anticipation, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward until verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. So we have our first sign. This woman representing Old Testament Israel looking forward to the time when they would bring forth the promised Messiah that from the nation of Israel would come the one and true rightful reigning king. But there's opposition to that plan. We have a woman who's in the latter stages of childbirth and before her stands a dragon, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. So you have a picture of power and rule and authority. So you have the corporate people of God opposed by a corporate image here of a dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems authority, power, and rulership. Now, we've looked at this before in the book of Daniel. Back in the book of Daniel, we've looked at the Ancient of Days, and we looked at the one like a son of man presented before the Ancient of Days. Now, I want to show you and go back and take a look at Daniel just for a second. Turn back to Daniel chapter seven. Keep your finger there in Revelation and go back to Daniel chapter seven. You may have a cross-reference in your Bible that quotes this, but Daniel's... um, book has to do with uh, kingdoms. And Daniel, while he's in exile, has these visions of kingdoms and things that are happening in his day and kings that will arise and kings that will fall and kings that will take their place. And in the midst of Daniel chapter 7, he gets an image and a vision of multiple subsequent kingdoms. And his image and his vision He sees these political world powers rise, and they're called, in Daniel's vision, beasts. Beasts are are images of great power, savage authority, but with no conscience, no morality connected to them. Now, take a look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. You'll see the heading of Daniel chapter 7 is the vision of the four beasts, And I'm going to skip the first three and take a look at just the fourth one, starting in verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, just like Revelation 12. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. There's coming in the latter years of the great tribulation period, one world power led by one devastating individual, which will be the Antichrist. We'll look at that next week in Revelation 13. But if you're still in Daniel 7 there, move forward down to Daniel 7, verse 19. We see the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man given dominion, the one who has the authority and a kingdom that he receives that will have no end. And then we move forward to talk about the fourth beast. Look at Daniel 7, verse 19. I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped which, what was left with his feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints... Possessed the kingdom. Now come back to Revelation. In the latter days, you're going to have a ten nation confederacy come together that will ultimately be led by one particular individual that will put down three rulers, take his place, and he will be the singular ruler. He's what we looked at earlier in the book of, or the chapter 11 of this book, the abomination of desolation that takes his seat in the temple of God and demands that everyone, everywhere, worship him. He's the final. Political power that will oppose and attack the nation of Israel. Now, the seven heads in Revelation chapter 12 are the seven historical uh, political powers that oppose the nation of Israel. Your first one in your Bible begins in Exodus, doesn't it? That you have Egypt, and you move from Egypt, and you have Assyria. And then from Assyria that takes the northern ca- nation into captivity, you have Babylon. And then you have the Medes and the Persians. And then you have the Greeks. Then you have the Romans. And you have the seventh final kingdom that will be the kingdom of the beast from Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. And behind these world powers in every season of Israel's existence, Satan waits. And Satan opposes. And Satan brings to political power individuals who will serve his purposes to pursue, oppress, and destroy the people of Israel. And here we are back in Revelation chapter 12 and the same thing will happen here. Now look at verse four. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven. Have you ever heard the the statement that Satan led a rebellion of angels out of heaven and it was a third of the angels. This comes from this verse here. It's probably not that he took a third of the stars that were on the woman's head, but that he took a third of the stars that were in the heavens, probably a third of the angelic armies. The angel armies that come out of, the demonic armies that come out of the abyss were 200 million that we looked at either, either earlier in this book. So you have hundreds of millions of demons that are led by the dragon. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, this is a pretty compromising position for a woman to be in. As the dragon stands before the woman, she is completely helpless in the pains of childbirth, ready to bring forth this child. And here stands the dragon, ready to destroy the infant who is to come. Now, if you think through the nation of Israel, there are political powers with great authority during times that are greatly important to God's purposes. Let me give you a couple. One is Pharaoh and the nation of Israel. As the nation of Israel grows to be multiple millions of people, there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph nor the works that he had done and he looks to the people of Israel around his land and he says there're too many. We must put these people under control. I've got an idea. We're going to kill the baby boys. That's how Exodus starts. Is the ambition of a political ruler to kill the next generation. Except for two midwives who protect baby boys at the day, who probably protect Moses as he now becomes the one who God will use to lead his people out of slavery, out of oppression, and into the wilderness with their God. A similar thing happens in the book of Matthew. That Jesus is born and wise men from the east come and they speak to Herod and they say, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And what does Herod say? Let me know where he is so that I can come and worship him too. And what does Herod do? He sets his soldiers to go after every male child to and under. At every point, Israel has found oppression from political powers and political leaders because God knows, and Satan knows, that if he can get the next generation, he can bring God's promises to nothing. So, the pretty intense visions, right? You get the idea of what John is seeing before him, this woman in pain and childbirth and vulnerable and oppressed and the dragon who will use any and all of his authority in any and all season throughout the history of Israel to bring God's promises to nothing because if God, if Satan can break Israel, then God's promises come to nothing. But every single time, Satan is frustrated. God has a way to bring forth the child of promise. Look at verse five. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, if you've got a cross reference in your Bible, you should have Psalm 2 there, right? We all read Psalm 2 here last week together where we we looked at the divine um, accolade of heaven itself as God acknowledges that you are my son, Jesus Christ. You are the one who will rule. Who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. I have installed my king on Mount Zion, God says in Psalm 2. And here's what Israel's looking forward to. The coming of their Messiah and the one true king. He is here. He is called to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You notice, now let's just look at the images that we've seen thus far. Here's the nation of Israel in great travail and pain. But essentially, the vision boils down to a nation who is filled with anticipation, filled with pain and persecution, but hope that God will be faithful to his promises and to bring forth the child that he has promised to give to them. Number two, you have the ambition of the dragon who seeks complete and utter destruction of these people. And then you have the image of the child The image of Jesus Christ himself whose life is essentially compressed. A compression of the vision of the woman who looks forward in anticipation and pain. A compression of the uh, ambition of the dragon to destroy, to be the great adversary of God's people. And a compression of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You don't have his death. You don't have his burial. You don't have his torture on the cross. You don't have any of his miracles. All you have in the vision is his victory. All you have in the vision is his ascension in victory that his job is done. Do you remember when Gabriel comes to Mary? Gabriel comes to Zechariah and, and tells him what's going on about John the Baptist and Elizabeth. Then he comes to Mary and he has a conversation with Mary and he says, Mary, Mary, greetings, oh favored one. And Mary's wondering, what kind of greeting is this, and why is an angel here, and what is he talking about, and why am I favored, and what is happening? And the angel says this, here's what Gabriel says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David." and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That Gabriel begins his encounter with this woman who is pregnant by the hand of God, saying he will win. He will rule. He doesn't say anything about the persecution of Christ. He doesn't say anything about his, the opposition that he faces from the Jewish leaders. He just says that he's come And he will rule, and he will reign, and he will win. And here Satan stands prepared to take out the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. And God snatches him and brings him to heaven. And Satan's plans are frustrated. That's a pretty good vision, isn't it? A pretty good biblical theology that works your way all the way through thousands of years of Israel's Old Testament. But now we step into, in our timing, we step into the last days. So John sees this vision of the historical ambition of the dragon to destroy and discourage and oppress God's people. We see the victory of the child that comes from the people of Israel. And now we move into the last days which is where we were in Revelation 11 when the seventh trumpet sounded. We're looking at the last times. Now look at verse six. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. This is your third mention from Revelation 11 and 12 of particular times where God will protect and preserve his people in the last days. So we move into the last days where Satan now is going to rule from Jerusalem through the Antichrist to become the final world power that will oppress and abuse and pursue God's people. And God will take his people once again into the wilderness and protect them. Now, the seventh trumpet just sounded, right? We saw that in Revelation 11. The seventh trumpet sounds, and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And I think at that very moment, Revelation 12, verse 7 begins. When that pronouncement happens in heaven, heaven itself uh, starts to, there begins to be conflict. Look at verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven. And Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now that's an interesting statement. I take it that if you die now in Christ and you ascend into heaven, into the presence of God, that you will still be able to see Satan and his demons in the presence of God. When you read the book of Job and you read Job 1 and 2, there's this divine conversation between God and Satan. And God says to Satan, hey, Satan, where you been? What you been doing? And Satan said, going out and in and out around the earth, in and around and up and down and through and under it. And he talks to God. And God tells Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And that begins this temptation and accusation and oppression of Job because Satan has a theory about Job. Job. He says, God, Job worships you because you bless him and you've put protection around him. He doesn't really love you and worship you and honor you as God he, for who you are. He does it because you give him perks. God says, all right, you can have him. And then you have the drama of God and Satan. There's another spot in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, there's a king named Ahab who's ruling and he's coming to the end of his rule and God is getting ready to depose this king Ahab and bring him to his end. And there's a prophet named Micaiah who's, who's standing before Ahab and another king at the time and he has a vision and he said, the Lord was on his throne and the hosts were gathered before him. And the Lord asks a question and says, who will entice Ahab to go up to this battle so that he might die and I might be done with my purposes in him and his life? And it's like there's a brainstorming session where the angels and demons go, I've got an idea, how about we do this? I've got an idea, how about we do this? One says one thing, one says another. And one finally, one demon says, here's what I'll do. I'll go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And God says, great idea, you'll go and you'll succeed. So here in Revelation 12, we have the purging of heaven of some particular presence where no longer... Will God allow Satan and demon access to heaven itself? It's as if the cleansing of heaven begins right here. And he begins to eliminate Satan, his influence, his conversation, and what his ambition is against the people of God. And God, in a sense, says, I will hear no more. Michael, remove them. Verse 9. And the great dragon... Was thrown down. Now you're going to see John give us a litany of names of Satan that are going to perk up certain things that you would remember as you've read through the Bible. Certain things that you would uh, would come to mind for you as you read both the Old and New Testament. And we're going to attribute to this great dragon several different names. One, he's the ancient serpent. Now, where does that make you think? Is that we go back to Genesis chapter three, don't we? We remember the temptation of Adam and Eve that there was a serpent in the garden who from the beginning of God's creation, who after he falls from heaven is now present in the garden having a conversation with Adam and Eve. Number two, he's called the devil and Satan. Devil is simply diabolos in the Greek. It means the evil one. The second one, Satan, is from a word that means the adversary, the great opponent of God's people, that Satan is not some joke to be trifled with. Satan's ambition in your life and in my life and in the lives of every single person on this planet is absolute domination, oppression, destruction, and devouring them. And he will stop at nothing to destroy you. Peter says this, In his epistle, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That means that there is spiritual warfare active in your life, in my life, in the people's life in Charleston, in the people's life in Iowa, and the people's life in Peru. That people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ are consistently oppressed, consistently attacked by the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Paul says, take up the full armor of God that you may take your stand in the evil day against Satan. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, in talking about restoring a brother who has sinned, says that we must now restore and encourage this brother after he's experienced the consequences of church discipline because we're not ignorant of Satan and his schemes. To leave somebody in guilt... Paul recognizes that this is the ambition of Satan. John gives us this picture of the great adversary of God's people, Old Testament and New. Not only that, he's he's called, number four, the deceiver of the whole world. Remember when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees? And they say, uh, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, "Uh, no, you're not. You're actually sons of the devil. But Jesus is always great to argue with. He's a great preacher. He doesn't pull any punches or like draw you in, make you feel like, oh, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. He goes, no, you're a son of the devil. That's your main problem is that you don't believe what I'm saying. I'm telling you the truth. I'll, you don't believe me. Here, I'll read it. Why do you understand? Don't you understand what I say? This is John 8, 43. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You don't listen to me because you don't want to listen to me because my words are true. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The great deceiver of the whole world. This is what we looked at several weeks ago in First John 4, talking about testing the spirits to see if they come from God. Any spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. Be aware of the winds of doctrine that are out there that would say and propose to you anything other than the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You with me? Look at verse 10. And I heard, now imagine this how do angels fight? I don't know, but here it is Michael, angels in heaven, dragon and his demons. Fist fighting, whatever they're doing, purged from heaven, tossed from heaven, and now all of heaven, with a loud voice, responds to the removal of Satan and his demons from the heavenly courts. This is what I want you to see. This is, this is the important part of, of looking at this text here this morning. All of what we're about to see here right now matters for you and Monday morning. It matters for you throughout the week in the way that you live and think and apply the truth of the gospel message and the blood of Christ to your life in your daily speaking and acting and thinking and praying and all of that. All of those normative ideas for us are so important and they're important because of these next few verses. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, now just circle that. All of heaven goes. The time is now. And the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Remember what was said when the seventh trumpet sounded? The seventh trumpet sounds in heaven. It says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That Jesus is about to rule and to reign on the earth. But at the same time that he does that, Heaven itself is purged of the deceiver. It's purged of the adversary. And the authority of Christ to remove him from play has now been enacted. Four, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. There's one more title that is given to Satan himself. You see that? The great red dragon, the devil, Satan, ancient serpent, uh, deceiver of the whole world, accuser of our brother. Can you get any more explicit on who Satan is and what his ambition is? There's no lack of information in defining what his agenda is. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. We're purging heaven of something that is very interesting for us to hear in the heavenly courts. He accuses them day and night before our God. You know, there's another group of individuals in heaven who do something day and night before God? It's the four living creatures, right? Who say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled of His glory. And day and night, they don't stop worshiping God for who He is. And at the same time, I take it here, there is the minor key of the mutterings and the accusations that Satan brings into the throne room of heaven. Whereas there's glory and beauty and praise and wonder at God, there is the day and night accusation of the one who accuses our brothers day and night and day and night and day and night. You know, it's interesting. When Satan shows up in Genesis chapter 3, Satan has nothing to accuse Adam and Eve of. Do you know that? Because they're perfect and they're righteous. So his temptation can't be shame, right? That doesn't work. His temptation aims at the person of God. But after that point, what Satan brings into the heavenly courts is a record of your failure. Do you ever have one of those weeks where you go, I can't do anything right? I can't say the right thing, I can't do the right thing, I can't think the right thing, I I love the wrong thing too much, I use my mouth in an inappropriate way, I lust too much, I love these many things. I know I believe in Jesus and who he is, but I don't know why this area of my life is so out of control and why I compare myself to other people so much and why I spend so much money on that thing that I don't really wanna tell people that much about. That there are areas of my life that I don't want on the evening news. And I don't want to talk about and do the hard work of being embarrassed about my sin. So what I'll do instead is maintain an image. And that we live in a time where our culture mandates that you present some kind of image And that sooner or later, you and I know this, that we experience a season or a valley or a place where we are embarrassed because of who we are. Where we're filled with regret and guilt and shame that though we know and love and serve and follow Jesus from what we say, our lives don't match who we feel we ought to be. You ever been there? See, when Satan is in heaven... It's hard to lie to an omnipotent, omniscient being. Would you agree? That God can see through all that, right? God has no problem with Satan. When Jesus faces Satan, it's not like Jesus is confused by the temptations. He cuts right to the heart of the temptation and lands on them with the word of God, right? See, in heaven, Satan doesn't need to be omniscient. He doesn't need to know everything. All he's got to do is watch you and go, see, she doesn't believe. See how she speaks to her kids? See how he spends his money? See how he isn't honest at work? See how he uses his position to preserve himself and not serve others? See how they, they quote a Bible verse here, but they're doing something in the dark that they don't want anybody to know about? God, you've got to see this over here, that they're an embarrassment as a people. They don't love you. They don't follow you. They don't trust you. See, in the presence of men, Satan always lies. In the presence of God, all Satan has to do is tell the truth. All he's got to do is see. In ancient Rome, there was an a individual that was known as the delator. A delator is Latin for denouncer. And it became a, um, it was someone who was a witness, but he was a witness for hire which always calls your witness into, into question. Would you agree? <laughs> that when you can pay a witness to make sure that he witnesses just the right thing, he became, it became a very lucrative possess, uh, a profession because you had people in power who would face political rivals at the time and all they'd have to do is hire a delator, And this delator would come and he would denounce and accuse this political rival of these certain things and he'd get paid on the side. It was being a false witness for hire. So when John writes this, there's an individual in the Roman world who he would see as the accuser. And here in heaven itself, here stands the one who accuses God's people before his throne. If you've ever read, I don't have time to turn to this now, but Zechariah chapter 3 is a vision that Zechariah, that, uh, Zechariah is given. Of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed in dirty garments. And Satan stands at his right hand and he accuses him. And he lists his failures and his inability to keep the covenant and his lack of righteousness. And all of that is brought out into vivid, and uh, in a vivid image before Zechariah. And Zechariah sees that he has no, that Joshua has no hope as the high priest of the nation to even come before the presence of God. Until God says, isn't the Lord rebuke you, Satan? Isn't this a brand plucked from the fire? Haven't I taken him and protected him? And then it moves on and it says that he clothes Joshua in a white turban and in beautiful white garments. And the angel of the Lord stands there and says, I have taken away your iniquity. What are you gonna do this week when you feel the mutterings in your mind and in your brain and in conversations where you know that you aren't the man or the woman that you ought to be? Where are you gonna go? You gonna solve it with personal discipline? Is that your solution? Can I show you the solution of heaven for that conversation? Look at verse 11. He accuses, but they have conquered. Now how do you conquer the accusations of Satan himself? They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. What do you need? When Satan lists your failures in the presence of God, it's not that he's lying, it's that he's telling the truth. It's that you have not lived up to the standards of heaven. What you need is the objective sacrifice of somebody else that gives you acceptance in heaven. Your sin is so bad that you need somebody to die for it. and you conquer in that moment, not by personal discipline, not by trying harder, not by remembering your good days, but alone by the blood of the lamb, amen? That's why you conquer. You look away from yourself and you look to the objective sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you bring your shame and your regret and your embarrassment and you receive from heaven itself divine commendation, divine justification that you are forgiven, redeemed, cleansed, and presented holy before his presence with great joy. Not only that, you conquer by the word of their testimony. What is our hope as a church? Our hope as a church is that we stand in this time and place in 2021 with a message of salvation for every single man and woman from every single background, from every single culture, time, and place that they can be made right with God. And we hold up the testimony of Jesus Christ saying that there's nothing else that can cleanse your sin and your shame and your embarrassment and your failure to keep the one true holy righteous law of God except for Jesus Christ. We hold that up. I don't care what they say out there. We don't move on that, right? We believe He's the way, the truth, the life. We hold to the word of His testimony. How long do we hold it? For they love their lives, not their lives, even unto death. How long do we hold it? All the way to the end. So you're going to get to the end of your life and you're going to be on your deathbed and your your brain waves are about to go flat and your heart's about to EKG stop and do all of that and you are going to cling and hold to the blood of the lamb that gives you welcome into heaven. And you are going to say, I am justified alone by the blood of Christ. Nothing that I have done, I cling alone to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and I go all the way to the end with that message. In any culture, in any relationship, in any job God calls me to, that we carry the word of testimony of Jesus Christ all the way to the end of our lives. And by that, we conquer the schemes of Satan. Did you notice how the male child escapes the attacks of Satan? Amen? He can't, he's got nothing to say. He can't attack that one. And we are safe in him. And that's the good news. Hebrews 12 talks about this, that we have come to Mount Zion. We haven't come to the old mountain, the mountain of condemnation of the law and all that. We've come to Mount Zion and we've come to uh, angels and festal garments and all this beautiful heavenly victory scene. And we've come to uh, the spirits of the righteous made perfect and the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than Abel. You know what that means? Abel's blood cries out from the ground for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and redemption so that your place in heaven is secure not because of what you've done because of what Jesus has done for you because you don't have to be ashamed this is one of the themes for us as Christians that God knows everything about me that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us right so I don't have to fear confession God knows everything about me he's cleansed it he's preserved me he's protected me and one day he will present me before the throne of heaven with great joy, without spot or blemish or any such thing, is what he says in Ephesians. So, heaven itself is finally cleansed of the muttering of the accusations of Satan. Now, what happens on earth? Look at verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens. Can you imagine what it would be like to no longer have the accusations of, heaven, of Satan in heaven? Heaven's finally like, whew, man, that's awesome. Somebody turn that station off. We're done with that guy listing the sins of God's people that are always met by the blood of the lamb. And now the heavens explode in rejoicing. O heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And from this point on, Satan goes on an all-out war against the woman and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we're about to celebrate communion. And we're about to do something that's so important for the life of the church. You know why? This isn't just like difficult to open bread and juice. This is a moment where we as a church say something that a lot of times people come to communion and they feel like we just got to be sad about all of our sin. But do you recognize that when we take communion together as a church, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes? That means we are saying, Hebrews 9 talks about the blood of bulls and goats being unable to take away sin. But the blood of Christ has the ability to cleanse our conscience to serve the living God. You ever feel like you're unworthy to serve the purposes of God and the things that he's called you to because of your sin? That you can't, I can't serve because I don't, I'm not that holy. What we're doing in communion is coming together and saying that the blood of Jesus Christ holds greater sway over my life than my own personal conscience does and awareness of the sins and accusations of my life. And we remember and rehearse again that Jesus died on the cross for me in my place to cleanse me from all sin and unrighteousness because we labor, unfortunately, under this constant threat and pressure of feeling like we've got to perform. And when we take communion together, we remember again what he has done for me. And when he has cleansed me, it is finished. That there is no more accusation, that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? So this is such an important moment for us as a church because as we take communion, we silence the accusations once again. We silence the muttering in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds that says you're not worthy, you haven't attained, you haven't measured up, you aren't who you ought to be. And we go, no, I cling alone to the blood of the lamb. So let's prepare our hearts together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to this table reminded so often of the ways in which we fail to keep your covenant. But Father, we cling to the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. For those this morning who come in and feel accused, I pray for freedom. I pray for a divine affirmation that the blood of Jesus Christ again testifies to his holy and acceptable sacrifice on the cross for us, and that we would leave this place as we partake of this meal, reminded of your love and care and uh, service and pursuit of us when we were darkened to you. And may we stand and rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life because you loved us, you called us, you have redeemed us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.